Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. Today, I've got Tyler Rugway with me. Tyler is a writer and editor for thewarzone.com. He's somebody I met uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, and he writes some of the most fascinating articles I've ever read on aerospace and defense issues. It's amazing to me the, the level of detail he can get into, the sources, who he talks with, and the various topics that he brings to the surface. Can't be more thrilled to have him on board. Uh, I think you're going to find this to be a great conversation, great podcast, and uh, you can always look him up on thewarzone.com. Hey, Tyler, what's happening in Portland? Uh, you know, not not much, man. It's you know cloudy. We're getting back to the the norms here, so we we don't tan, we rust out here. Um, we've had a beautiful summer, and and now it's uh, it's going to go back into living kind of in the. And, you know the Dagobah system, right? We're, we're, it's it's like a swamp out here. So, uh, but aside from that, no, everything's everything's good out here. Gotcha. So you and I got introduced. I don't know, maybe a little over a year ago, when I read one of your articles, and now I've become a religious reader of the uh, the Drive dot com. And I know you write more on defense issues, a lot of aerospace and defense issues. And uh, you know, what are what are two or three hot topics right now that uh, you know what's What's driving the world in aerospace and defense? Is it UAV, UAS? Is it F-35? What, uh, what do you think? What are you thinking out there? Yeah, I mean, right now, really the top topics that we're looking at on a daily basis is the counter UAS world, um, the Saudi attack um, on their oil infrastructure was a real eye-opener for a lot of people and also very confusing for just regular people um, to see how that could happen, um, something oftentimes compared to something out of science fiction or, or you know, a dystopian movie. Uh, so it's definitely one of them. Uh, another one is obviously the, you know, fighter procurement is always very hot um, and what's going to be happening in the near term with programs like F-15X and F-35. And then you also have um, in the long term, which is like, is the, is the Air Force even going to be buying a fighter in the future? Um, something new that we don't already see a new rendition of. So um, a lot of speculation there and a lot of uh, kind of cryptic talk coming from the Air Force on that. Um, and beyond that, you know, every day is different, right? So we anything can pop up at any given time. Um, but th those two are really the, the the two that have been kind of the, the, are obviously the most interesting as of late. Also, what's coming out of China, you know, uh, every day China is almost something new, something, um, you know, concerning as far as their military capabilities and especially the production capacity. So there's also a lot of interest on that right now. So, you know, I, I read your stuff every day. I mean, and, and I'm always fascinated. And for everybody listening, I mean, it's, it, it is really amazing to me how deep you're able to get into national security issues. Um, you know, I don't know if you got eyes everywhere or, or what, but it's, it's, it's amazing to me some of the stories that you write about. 
you know, you know, F, you know the uh, the F seven one seventeen is flying around, you know, uh, Nevada right now. Who's who's flying it and why? You know, just case in point. But let's talk about yeah, you know, let's talk about China a little bit. So obviously, building up their uh, their military. Um, good article today on uh, unmanned, unarmed stealth drones that they're doing, and how they're the scariest things in their arsenal. What do you think? Uh, you know, what's China's end game there? Where do you where do you think they're going? Well, you know, I I think it's kind of like asking the U.S. what its primary interests are, and, and it's never one thing. And a, a lot of times, people want to put China into this monolithic category, like it's about Taiwan, it's about South China Sea, it, it's it's about uh, you know uh, expanding well well abroad, right? And really, they have multiple prongs of their foreign policy that that is manifesting itself um, clearly, somewhat clearly at least, in its military capabilities. And this is something that goes back to when I started writing: is like if you really want to know what a country its biggest fears are and its biggest aspirations are, you can do all the profiling you want on its world leaders. You can look at all the geopolitical, you know, ins and outs. But really take a good look at where they're putting their hard currency, how their hard money in military capabilities. It's really expensive to build this stuff. So the, the idea that uh, maybe their most telling card shows up actually in, in the gear they're buying. And one of the biggest things that we're seeing out of China, well, there's two, probably two major ones, is that um, – is that their shipbuilding is just amazing. Their ability to produce not lower-end surface combatants, but high-end surface combatants, um, uh, you know, large destroyers and now uh, carriers or amphibious assault ships is eye-watering. Uh, just recently, they actually just today, um, it would have been yesterday in China, they floated out their first full-on amphibious assault ship, um, something that is almost closely equivalent to our WASP class. And they built that thing from keel up. Now, they probably had super lifts already built to put it together, but they constructed this thing in about five months. It takes three or plus years to do that same job for a LHA, an America-class LHA that's that's being pumped out now um, from our own shipbuilding industry. So that's definitely one side. And another side would be, um, you know, their investments in stealth technology and their advancements in stealth technology. Um, we are not, I mean, they're still behind us in many ways, but it's not as simple as having a qualitative advantage. Um, you know, quantity has a quality all its own. So we're looking at those those things uh, along with anti-ship ballistic missiles and hypersonics that kind of all build into this anti-access capability as well as this ability to reach far out from Chinese shores and affect the world in ways that China hasn't been able to in the past. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, is it, you know, it, it 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 does seem like they're moving far and fast. Is the uh, is is the U.S. industrial in Europe? Are they keeping up? Are they able to stay a step ahead, or is it you know is that gap just going to close and it's going to become a wash between uh, everybody? No, I mean the, the the ability that they're the the amount of ships that they're putting out, especially you know when you talk to the, look at the naval realm, it's just it's just way in excess of what we can do. Um, 
I mean, we have our allies as well, and that helps, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a combined fight if it were to ever be a fight, uh, potentially, especially in that region. But um, the investments, the spooling up of this infrastructure to build these ships, and now we're going to be getting into not building copies of, of carriers, you know, Soviet-era carriers, but we're going to be getting into building an, an actual CV, you know, a nuclear, potentially nuclear-powered large uh, supercarrier. Uh, right. And so the, just just the progress in technological advancement and know-how and execution, it, it, it's not eye-watering. It's, it's unbelievable. If you were to show most people this 10 years ago, few of us were banging the drum way back when. Um, but most people thought that this would be something that would occur in the 2030s, not the end of this decade. Okay? So it's really hit warp speed, and I don't think – I don't think the, the U.S. military and its allies have a grasp on it at this time. It's, it's moving fast. It's outpacing our ability to react, and, and that's very concerning. Do you think good old-fashioned American intervention comes in to, uh, to dominate, or is it just going to be the typical DOD bureaucracy? Um, you know, can't get out of our own way. It takes 20 years to develop fighter. I'm good indication from the beginnings of good indications from the military that the old system will not work and they're going to have to slay some sacred cows to keep up and to outpace this threat. And, and it's coming from the top brass. Um, there's been a lot of junk leadership within the Pentagon, in my opinion, in the last decade. There's some good people in there now that are getting this, that are talking about it, understanding that industry has to engage as well. You can't just do this from the Pentagon. You have to get industry to buy into changing their model, right, their, their profit model and their, um, and their whole business model. And so I, I think it's changing. I think it is. And, and yes, innovation is key. But you got to remember, China is so focused on on looking for every Achilles heel that we have and then exploiting the hell out of it as fast as they can through military capabilities. So not just, you know, speeding up procurement uh, of different uh, weapon systems and all that is good, but also really trying to close those gaps as fast as we can so that way we're not, you know, we're not set to lose a fight today just so we can win a fight tomorrow. Um, and, and that, so it's a complex issue. It's, it's a disturbing issue. Um, and, and hopefully it's an issue that we'll never have to actually see, you know, in, in actually in, in operation, you know, in, in, a, in some sort of even limited conflict because it, with what we're seeing now, it would be incredibly bloody in that region. Yeah, no, I mean, well, Hey, look, it's, they've taken a, they've taken a very aggressive stance. I mean, with all their neighbors and, um, you know, you know, it's like I tell my kids, you know, it's always a pendulum. And the pendulum can swing too far either direction. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, they may be at a very, you know, you know, but they may be swinging the pendulum, you know, a little bit too far one direction. Um, you know, which, which puts everybody on notice and gets them searching for, you know, other options. So, well, and I think what we're going to see in this military parade on October 1st for the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC is going to be, it, it might be a game changer. It might be an eye opener. Um, and we'll see. But, you know, I think that, I think by and large, the American population, just in general, 
they see these stories. They hear about these ships. They hear about stealth fighters. You know, it's out there. Right. But I don't think they realize the degree to which China is progressing and as fast as they are. And, and I think maybe something like this this big event, which will will, will make world news, you know, might help help. Uh, at least awaken the populace to what's going on over there. Yeah, it's like it's like my good friend Hank Coates, who's uh, CEO of the uh, Commemorative Air Force. He spent a lot of time in China, and he's like, "Hey, look, they're they're very, very, very smart people. They play a long game and don't ever discount them because they will uh, they will surprise you." So it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, that's uh, it's an interesting it's it, you know it's an interesting thing to see what's happening in, in world on the world stage. You know, whereas you know the old Cold Wars is over, you know, let the new Cold War begin, I guess. That's uh, where we're going. We're definitely in a new strategic era. So, you know, and I think it's very clear to most everybody, but some people are still kind of holding off on making that claim, you know, new Cold War, whatever have you, you hear different catchphrases for it. But there is no doubt um, that this is a very different animal than we've experienced before. And, and, uh, and, and I think that the realization is now settling in. Yeah, no, I agree. How about Iran? I mean, um, you've got the catbird seat on what's going on in Iran. I mean, obviously, um, uh, some sort of UAV or cruise missiles landing in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, uh, that, once again, we talk about eye-openers, right? Uh, We saw, I mean, this is one of my pet projects uh, going back a decade, banging the drum, screaming at the top of my lungs that this is going to be the future. Um, It's not exquisite high-end weapon systems necessarily. It comes down to... Uh, swarms or hordes of small, inexpensive, what I call suicide drones, um, and and you know cheap cruise missiles. These are these are you know inexpensive weaponry um, that you can that are meant to be lost in battle, um, and that pose a major threat when they're layered together, and they are um, and they you know are used in mass. That that's really the reality of it. Our air defense systems. You know people think they're magic. I've written multiple pieces on this. I just did another one that, uh, about this drone threat, uh, kind of sum it all up. But, uh, you know, the the idea out there is that integrated air defense systems, even the high-end stuff, low-end stuff, whatever it is, it's like this magic, you know, wall uh, that can keep all the threats out. And, it, you know, and that's kind of how it's sold, quite frankly, and it's totally unrealistic. And I think we saw that um, in Saudi Arabia. You know, it doesn't take a stealth fighter, uh, you know, some expensive 20-year project to be able to pierce into a a highly defended territory with modern systems and uh, take out a strategic target, one that is their ma- major moneymaker in that country. I mean, we're talking about the kingdom here, you know. I mean, it's not some – yeah, this is it. I mean, it's when it comes to oil production, um, they're at the very top of the list. So um, – it, it the shore rad gap, short range air defense gap, um, is something that the America is is experiencing as well. We are just as vulnerable to the threat, um, basically not maybe by proximity, but you know it, it's there, and we need to be doing more. Uh, the DoD was asleep at the wheel for, and they knew and some people knew saw it coming, and not everybody was you know totally you know aloof. But it's not a sexy or, or um, you know, it's, not, it's basically not a sexy thing to invest time and money into short-range air defenses, especially against low-flying, slow-flying, low-radar cross-section drones. Um, but that's the reality now, and we need to – this has to be integrated into every part of what we do. And a lot of the systems we're seeing and the concepts we're seeing 
are still dated into like low volume attacks, not um, dozens or hundreds of drones. And I'm going to tell you, this was from Iran, a long distance attack from Iran, or at least backed by Iran. Okay, imagine what our pure state competitors can do and are going to be able to do like China. And they are very active in this space as well. Gotcha. So what does this do? You know, let's just talk about now to aerospace. And um, is the F-35 the last manned fighter ever to be created? Or do you think there's something more coming down the pike? I've said that for quite a while. You know, the idea of a sixth generation fighter is a pipe dream. Uh, it comes down to money. It comes down to, to utility. The future is unmanned. Um, and you can still use some manned assets, obviously, for a lot of different missions. But when it comes to like a penetrating fighter type aircraft, counter air aircraft, um, aircraft that can kick down the enemy's air defenses, etc., a network swarm um, or highly networked horde of these aircraft, of unmanned aircraft, can move faster than a human can. It can break the enemy's decision cycle. Um, and it's just the idea that we're going to be building some exquisite fighter that's going to be the next best thing. That'll be a 20 year program that will break our budget. It's just, it's just not, it's not reality. Um, the air force is beginning to realize this, that they can build unmanned systems faster, more adaptable, much cheaper that, you know, if it's somehow autonomous, you don't have to fly it. It also solves a lot of problems with pilot training. You know, the idea that people don't realize, like once you buy these, you can store them. You don't need to fly them on a daily basis. You need a core unit to work on tactics development, et cetera, integrate new technologies. But beyond that, these can sit in a hangar. Um, so there, there's certain other areas that this gets into that are game-changing for the Air Force and the Air Arm and for the Navy, et cetera. So I think if there's going to be a so-called sixth-generation fighter, um, a manned airframe, it will be an F-35E. You know, it'll be a major upgrade of that platform, um, and and the rest should should be and hopefully will be unmanned. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I think. Yeah, that's the general consensus, and I think there's some old, maybe there's some uh, hangers honors that you know, for lack of a better term, that kind of want to you know see the yeah uh, uh, see the, uh, maybe the glory in the man fighter pilot and the Top Gun and Tom Cruise, etc. But, oh, um, the white scarf community in the, in the Pentagon is extremely, tight. extremely powerful. So, uh, and I think one of the largest reasons why, you know, especially in the Navy and, and the Air Force too, it, why the unmanned combat air vehicles disappeared in 2009-ish, that was like the biggest revelation in um, flight since the jet engine, and it just went totally dark. And it, I'm sure it exists in the classified realm, but that's a big problem. Because we are spending massive amounts of money on manned fighters for the next 20 years when this other technology can go two or three times as far, far less signature, far more stealthy, much more adaptable, cheaper in every way um, exists in the dark. So, yeah, absolutely. Culture is a huge part of this. Gotcha. So, you know, I read it every day. We got Aviation Week, all the various trade pubs and everything. You've probably got a better viewpoint into it. Why is the F-35 taking so long to develop oh, to, the point, to the point really now where it's, <laughs> to the point now where it's, uh, it's really, you know, it's almost obsolete before it's even, you know, in service. 
I mean, I, we could spend three hours on that. Um, I think I have probably a thousand articles in the F-35, good and bad, you know, both. There's some really good things about that system. There's some really not so good things about it. Um, I think that when you look at it, it was flawed to begin with and that you're, they're really building three fighter jets. It's not one commonality type. They look similar, but they're very different in many ways. Um, and, you know, the Stovall, the short t- uh, takeoff and vertical landing requirement, just drastically changed the airframe of that aircraft. You had to accommodate this very unique niche capability, and the A and C models will pay for that every day in terms of performance for their entire lives. At the same time, the F-35B, the Stovall version uh, that the Marine Corps is, is buying, um, that that's a big force multiplier for our um, – or expeditionary forces. You have now on amphibious assault ships the ability to use a weapon for first day of war that can get into enemy air defense networks, etc. for the time being at least. Um, it's, in the past, that wasn't the way it was. You had the you know, AV-8B Harrier. It was not a high-end asset. Um, so, so there's a good and bad there, but when you fast forward through it, that combined with a, a, a you know the, the idea of concurrency of building airframes while you're still trying to figure out what the heck is going on and testing, um, you know, the airframe to see if it works were the biggest blunders. Um, and, and the Air Force is, has admitted this. I mean, this isn't, this used to be guys like me got slammed for bringing it up. Now this is common knowledge. There'll be, there will, there's not going to be another F-35 program. That's why the Air Force, the top rungs are saying they're going to do the exact opposite and try to develop a fighter in five years. That's what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And which will probably be unmanned systems and, you know, low, low quantities and evolutionary designed um, concepts not these, you know, 30-year programs that end up costing huge amounts of money. And, you know, the reality is at the end of the day is that the F, here's where I'm at with it. Instead of going through the past, let's look forward. Um, the F-35 has to work. We've bet, we've bet so much on that airframe. So I'm a critic of the program, but at the same time, I'm here to say we need to spend whatever it takes, and that's, that's a crazy thing to say, but it's true, to make sure that those airplanes are, A, capable – survivable for the time being, as long as we can make them to be, and that they're actually flyable. Because if, if you have a fleet of these things and they're, you know, 40% of the time they're mission capable and 60% of the time they're not, we're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of where it's at. There's no turning back. We need to make the best of it. And that means funding it to its maximum degree so that way we can, we can actually realize the benefits of it. Um, and that includes a lot of spare parts because they break a lot. Okay? Yeah, no, reality. No, no doubt. So let's shift that one more. Let's take that to a different level. You've got all sorts of defense consolidation going on. Um, look, I understand the, the the drivers behind it, but I'm not a big I'm not a big believer in bigger is better. Take Boeing. Um, I think Boeing's got so much going on. You know, with Boeing Global Services and then the military side of the house, and then Max and Triple Seven X. Um, their service and support group, you know, their, their satellite division. I think they got so much going on. They're starting to lose focus. Um, any opinion there? Yeah. I mean, Boeing is one, they're manifesting issues in very big ways and headline making ways, right? So all the focus is on them. Um, there's been some real problems there. I mean, not just with Max, um, obviously, uh, you know, look at KC 46. I mean, maybe that's the, out of all the programs out there, maybe that's the most bewildering. Um, and yes, 
the Air Force basically built a Franken airplane with different parts of different, you know, variants to build that 767 when they could have just used the 767 that was already being built. Okay, right. I, it's that's that's understandable that there might be integration issues there, um, but that thing is a mess and it's still a mess. And Boeing, that's their core portfolio, man. I mean, that's it. You know, they built the KC-135 in, what, a couple years that thing was flying and, and in production, and it's still flying. And that was that was 60 years ago. So um, there are big red flags. And I think there's red flags across the industry, though. I don't think it's just Boeing. And I think a lot of it has to do with engineering talent, personally. Um, and this is the kind of the taboo subject nobody wants to talk about. I'm happy to. Um, guess what? If you're the most talented kid in the class, if you are a brilliant engineer or, or software programmer, which is now just as important for these airframes and these systems, weapon systems, are you going to go get a clearance, live under that, and go get a job at Boeing? Or are you going to go to Google and, you know, get a back rub every day and, and yeah. you know, get stock options and, and the whole nine and be in that environment? The change in the tech industry has drastically rebalanced the engineering, um, kind of the engineering talents and where it flows to in this country. And so then you're stuck with outsource and outsource has its issues, you know? Yep. We don't have enough good engineers in the in 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 the defense space and the aerospace space, I believe. And that's why we're learning the same crazy lessons we used to learn that we learned 50 years ago with a slide rule, you know, and a pencil. Um, it's it's not good, and we needed we need to do something about it, and that has to do with immigration. That has to do with a lot of things. But I believe that it is the one major issue that is not discussed when it, and people do not understand when it comes to these programs that are suffering so bad on an engineering um, level. Yeah, no, I I I was a speaker out in San Diego. Couple of weeks ago, I was. I'm going to be speaking at a conference in uh, in November, and that's my whole. That's my whole thought. It's it's like, look, I'm going to, you know, I'll be probably politically incorrect here, but aerospace Please. is aerospace is run by a bunch of middle aged conservative white guys who are boring, and the and the industry is getting boring, and it shouldn't be getting boring because it's is technologically. Um, as far yeah, whatever Google's doing can be done at Raytheon or Boeing or Northrop Grumman, et cetera. There's so much opportunity, you know, regarding AI, uh, advanced aerodynamics, new you know, new jet engine platforms. Um, it should be exciting stuff for every you know, engineer in school right now. But we've 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 you know we're so conservative um, that I think it's just turned off a whole generation of uh, of young people. I think you're right there. I do. I think it needs to totally change, and it's it's a cultural thing, and it's also a Pentagon thing, and it's a security thing. Um, you know, people people that do that are brilliant in engineering. You know, maybe they smoke pot. You know, maybe they do. Guess what? It's legal in most in half the states or whatever now. You know, um, it doesn't have to be your personal choice, but is that going to disqualify that person from having a clearance? and being able to do incredible work for the government. Um, engaging Silicon Valley has obviously been kind of a thing um, that really hasn't solidified. 
there are we need to go totally outside the box. Uh, just how the Air Force is, was so concerned about losing its pilots, right, and and retaining, and you know filling the cockpits. We need to look at that for the industry and and work with the defense industry to fig- with the defense department to figure out ways to make it more attractive for a brilliant kid that can really change the game for a company, you know, small or large in the space. Um, not going to Facebook, but going to, you know, a, a Raytheon or a Kratos or whatever, you know, and, and using their talents there. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely key. Um, and, 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 and frankly, once again, not a fun, sexy recruitment is not the funnest, sexiest issue, right? But it's absolutely key because we are living in a different technological time. Yeah, but I think what is a fun, sexy, cool issue is, is you look at any CEO and you say, this is all a part of, you know, building and growing a business. You know, you're, you're, you, know, you always wanted to be a CEO because you thought it'd be cool and fun and exciting. And this could be, you know, you're thinking about your company 10 years ago, 10 years from now or 20 years from now and strategically building it to that is fun and exciting. It and, is, but know, it quite, takes a lot of courage to break the model like this with such a conservative reality. You know, um, culture. It just is. I, I'm with you 100. Um, percent Yeah. We need an innovator to really make this the issue, right? Um, I haven't seen it yet, so hopefully, uh, hopefully it changes. Yeah, I mean, in, in the same in the same vein too. I talked to a lot of my, you know, my my military buddies who are all retiring now, or, um, you know, and it's it, you know, and I, and I see the military going backwards a little bit instead of becoming more more progressive. It's it's almost going back to like to the days in the seventies. And it's like, Hey guys, yeah, to grow the whole industry forward, everybody's got to be, you know, marching to the, you know, pop culture per se. It's, you know, the Kardashian culture is going to have a big effect on our, uh, on our, on our industry. Uh, It is. But right now it's, it's to like, Oh, let's hire some young cool kids to do an Instagram account. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's what I see coming out of, companies with massive resources, right? And, and their recruitment people would probably just sit here and fight all day about it, telling me that's not the case. But I don't know. I talked to a lot of people. I talked to young people that would potentially, that love the topic, right? And they asked me, what do you, what do you think? And I, you know, I tell them it's great. And then they realize the reality of what working at a company versus B company is, you know, old aerospace company versus something in Silicon Valley. And it, And it's like, they just can't, they just can't make the call, even though they love the topic. So yeah, any way that we can, um, you know, bring, you know, some real eyes to the issue, I think is, is a good thing. And I really need to do a large piece on it too, to discuss this because it's, uh, it's strategic too, you know? And and maybe the answer is, Hey, look, you can't rebrand, you know, your, your grandfather's Oldsmobile is still your grandfather's Oldsmobile. You know, that will never change, and that's why Oldsmobile went away. But, you know, a lot of these companies, too, it might be, hey, look, we are creating, you know, we want to we want to create a super sophisticated tech group. Let's start it from scratch, you know, kind of like a startup, rebranded under something different, and somehow integrated into our operations. And if that's what, it, you know, if that's what it needs to take, it's just going to take a whole new, I think it's just going to take a whole new paradigm of thinking. It the, is. Uh, and, you know, with, with the change, 
changes in in weapon systems, right? Just in general, on the tech side, mm-hmm. even like we're talking about building a fighter in five years, or you know, unmanned systems, right? All these new, new, still new technologies that are that are coming and that are, are kind of progressing more to a distributed type of non-platform specific concept. There's going to be room for startups in the defense space. There's going to be room for new ideas and for people to come in and say, hey, we can do it differently. And, it's, you know, hopefully there's capital there for them to be able to to execute that. And with that could come new culture and, and maybe inject some of this. But it's never going to really happen, um, in my opinion, unless the DOD is fully on board with understanding it and realizing that it's, you know, not the same cultural feel is is a good thing at all these different companies um and once again it comes out of clearances too and 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 you know that's it's kind of gotten a horrible that holding a clearance has kind of gotten a bad rap you know Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) oh my gosh yeah well look at what happened to microsoft where everybody um you know you had microsoft was it microsoft or google where half the engineers walked out you know like we don't want to right we don't want to work for the dod we want to we don't want to be a part of war and it's like hey look you know Quite frankly, we're not trying to create war. We're trying to, uh, you know, just defend against it. So, what's yeah. the indi- what's the industry doing right? Let's uh, let's talk about one last thing. What's the industry really doing right? Well, I, I think the industry is coming to terms with the fact that um, once again, the, the threats changing uh, and the the need to the old ways of of doing business as far as procurement goes, right? Um, weapon system procurement, especially. It just isn't sustainable anymore, like it used to be, um, and that that's going to have to man- manifest itself more, you know, in the future to see exactly how that that change is going to look like. But a lot of times, people kind of separate the two. We just kind of discussed this, but the DoD and industry, it, it's really one and the same in so many ways, right? And so I think as there's more there's more leadership voicing their opinion and what they're looking for in a future procurement strategy, I think industry will change and I think they're ready for it. I think even for their business model, I think they're ready to to you know innovate in that end. Rapid prototyping, uh, getting into trying to get us, you know, kind of skunkworks model really is is being um is being ad- adopted more widely obviously and you know that's a good thing too. Allows to fail more, experiment more without, you know, making it a headline um blunder. I think that's a big part of it uh, as well in the future, but um, generally speaking, it's an odd time for the defense industry. There's a lot of cash being thrown around. There's new elements like hypersonics that are new cash cows that have emerged, and everybody's trying to get a piece of that. Um, I think what's really going to show of how they've adapted or how adaptable the industry is is when the budget retracts, and it's going to, in my opinion. I think they're. I think the defense industry is living in a lava land right now. Yep. It's not sustainable, these budgets. And, you know, listen, I bring it up to them, some of these people, and it, it, it's like silence on, on the phone, you know. Um, they, It's kind of as if this is going to last forever, and I don't believe it is. And if there's a 10 or 15% cut in defense spending across the board, uh, that is going to be a, a big sea change. And how they deal with that, how they adapt their, their um, products and their offerings – is really going to show uh, who's on the leading edge and who's trailing. Do you see some of these guys going at risk, much like Textron did with the, um, you know, their light attack aircraft? I do. 
it's easier to do with smaller programs um, that could have big effects, once again, unmanned systems, this sort of thing, integration. Um, I, you know, I think that's a key, a key element. Um, I think putting your money where your mouth is is going to be the future, like fixed, you know, fixed contracts. We're already seeing what Boeing has done with that to basically buy, you know, to buy market share that it needed. Um, and it's going to have to pay the bill on that in the future. You know, it has three, the defense side, it's got, what, three major programs that it supposedly bid very aggressively. Um, and it's going to have to, to, to actually, you know, produce and and still somehow stay afloat. Um and part of that, though, is is putting in their, their their own money in these things and saying, "Hey, here's what we have. Um, if you're interested, let's let's do something with it further." Um, so yeah, there's going to be a, a much higher risk element going forward. I think that the appetite for these just big gold-plated, "Hey, we're in it together," you know, government and industry programs that can just run amok on on their budget is kind of coming to an end. Yeah, the the the, the new Ford carrier and. The debacle that's become the KC forty six and that debacle. Um, yeah, and KC forty six. There, you know, that's a fixed price deal. There, there's some things that have been kind of under the, you know, that have gone under the bridge now to redevelop, like the boom. I believe the Air Force is paying for to get that thing fixed. But generally speaking, Boeing is eating it on that program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had, they had a fixed price deal, so <laughs> yeah, it's not pretty. Um, and that's that's for the tanker side. For you know, that's in seven sixty seven that they've built for years. But imagine. If that were to happen with TX, um, which is now the T7, the, the new trainer, jet trainer, on the defense side, if all of a sudden that program inverted and went upside down budget-wise and they have to produce X amount of fighters, um, you know, it can be a big – it can be a, a hard a hard nut to swallow, man. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, it's an aggressive strategy uh, for Boeing on the defense side. But like I say, a lot of these programs are going to be coming to maturity for delivery in like the mid 2020s, you know. Mm-hmm. And what what is that? If that is healthy, it's going to be a huge win for them. If it isn't, it could be disaster. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I wish them the best. I you know I think all these companies have done great things for the United States. Um, you know, oh, yeah. and uh, you can pick on them all day long. But there's also there there some of them are kind of you know. They're they're uh, treasures, national treasures. So you want them to succeed, but uh, some of the you know as as the bidding wars get tighter and there's less of these big programs to own that can pay for decades. Um, I don't know if the business model is going to actually be harmful for these companies or beneficial. Yeah, no. Look, I when I look at a Lockheed Martin or I look at a Northrop Grumman or I look at a Boeing, yeah, you know, the people that I talk inside those companies, you know, they, they're all brilliant. I mean, they're oh, really, right. yeah. they're really, really smart people. And and there's a lot of dynamics. And that's the one thing that, you know, as an outsider looking in, you got to remember there's a lot of dynamics that they got a, they got a very fickle and capricious Congress who allocates money. You've got a DOD that changes its mind with every new program manager who wants to put his or her stamp on, on it. All right. Um, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy environment to operate in. And, you know, the people who can do it well, um, you know, look, they're, they're, they're truly, you know, they're smart, they're brilliant people. And, and the technology that's come out of them is nothing short of incredible and continues to be. So. Oh yeah. And I mean, I, I literally put this in writing, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, right. uh, these companies are working within a system that has been built 
by our representatives. And, you know, so um, listen, change has to come at the top, you know. Um, So, yeah, and and that's the hard part is that, you know, being critical is one thing. And like even on the engineering talent, I mean, that's not to say, you know, they need to recruit young people. That's not to say there's some not some of the most brilliant people in the world working in these in these areas. Um, you know, it's just not enough potentially to sustain the future. But um but yeah, it, it it's I, I think the real challenge, the real kind of acid test is gonna be when when the budget retracts and you know, it could be as soon as a couple of years here that we could see a major sea change. And what comes out of that, how they adapt and how they can work under a, a tighter fiscal environment um, and still and still innovate and still push us forward to where we need to, to face a, a threat like China, right? right? Which they're not slowing down. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, but it's going to be, it's going to be, I believe, a wild ride. Yeah, no, I got you. So, um, so how did you get into the, you know, how the drive.com? It's a, it's a great, I mean, it is a fantastic website. How did you get into defense reporting and 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 the ability to deep dive on all of this? You know, it's it's a weird, it's a very strange story. I, I have no in my family. I mean, there's people that served in the periphery, but like my direct family, nobody was in the military. Um, nobody's in the defense industry. Uh, I grew up with an obsession with aerospace technology and military technology. And when I say that, it's not like when I was 18, I got into airplanes or something. It was like when I was a little tiny kid. And so the learning for me on this and the curiosity level has never ceased. It's only increased as I've, you know, gone through my teens into my adult, into adulthood and college, et cetera. Um, and I was in various businesses, you know, startups and things in after I got out of college that were unrelated. And eventually, um, I, I was told by multiple people that were kind of around me in this, that, you know, had a similar interest. It's like, Hey, you know, you have opinions on this stuff and you seem to, to kind of be able to connect the dots differently than other people. You should just write about it, uh, you know, on a blog. And I, and I did it. Uh, I, I started a blog a decade ago and it was just a personal take on all this. And it was kind of a different, a different angle in that I tried to take strategy, technology, um, and, and, you know, mix it with foreign policy and what's going on in the world so people could get an idea of not just a deep dive of what the tech actually is or does, but also of how it actually impacts a, a larger geopolitical um, scenario or a larger, you know, strategy overall. And it was successful. Um, and we were able to do things that, once again, kind of breaking the old school conservative defense reporting model um, that others couldn't do. And we have fun too. I mean, we'll, the, the site changes on a daily basis. Sometimes it's very, you know, those very serious topics. Sometimes it's opinionated and sometimes we talk about something funny and we, we have a good time. But basically I, I did that blog. It got picked up uh, by Gawker Media, which is now Go Media, of all people, very liberal outlet, but they love the idea of potentially doing something like this. And it was like one of their most successful subsites they ever created. And then Time Inc. came to me. Um, that's now owned by Meredith. And they said, uh, you know, we want to do something similar, um, we'll give you some more resources, et cetera. And, and that's kind of where I've been at now. Um, and, yeah, we're connected to a, a transportational vertical called The Drive. But we're the, war, the best way to get to us is thewarzone.com. And it, it's just basically all our stuff there that's connected to the site. But you can go right direct to our page. And that's it. So, yeah, it's we are a very different model. We're a small group. We're very agile. Um, and we try to get on these topics. And 
let people walk away, not just with kind of the, the basic journalistic who, what, when, where, why, but with kind of a, a deep expert level and, and a conceptual understanding of what this stuff really is and what it actually means and why it's important, um, which I think a lot of times the, the mainstream defense press, which does a marvelous job in so many ways, um, they kind of miss. So that's yep. what we are. That's awesome. So uh, the best way to, to find you is on thewarzone.com. Yeah, that's definitely it. That takes you right to our page. So, And um, email, what's, uh, if someone wanted to reach out to you with a story or question, what's the best way to, for people yeah. to connect with you? Yeah, anytime. Um, Twitter's great. Um, I'm aviation underscore intel on Twitter, or you can get me direct by my email, which is uh, tyler at thedrive.com, T-Y-L-E-R at thedrive.com, and that'll get me directly. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. This was fascinating. I want to have you come back. And we'll talk about uh, more programs and the future of uh, unmanned air taxis and all the other things that uh, I'm sure you've got your eye on, too. Absolutely. It's a great time. Anytime. Happy to come back. Thanks, Tyler. Hey, have a good one.